Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Joe Biden will be the next president, barring something unexpected. And these days, that something could well be increased provocations against China or maybe Iran, creating an opportunity for Trump to have his wartime president moment. Outright war is unlikely, but almost war? Possible. If you think that Trump represents an extremely aggressive section of American capital and is moving the country towards a Mussolini-style corporate fascism, then there's only one way to defeat Trump, and that's to vote for Biden. That said, we shouldn't have illusions about who Biden represents. So consider this interview one that helps dispel notions that Biden is anything other than a representative of, at least domestically, a somewhat less aggressive section of finance and big corporate power. Less aggressive, but Biden is still a defender of a system and policies that created the greatest inequality gap in history and set the table for Trump. When it comes to foreign policy, Biden is a mixed bag. He supported the Iraq war, but he fought to pass the Iran nuclear deal. His recent threatening rhetoric against China does not promise much change on that front. And one thing is certain. If the U.S. and China do not cooperate to deal with the climate crisis, we're doomed. Perhaps despite the rhetoric, there is more of a chance of Biden doing that than Trump, given that Don Nikon won't even accept that there is a climate crisis. Now joining us to discuss just who is the real Joe Biden is Branko Marcic. He's a staff writer for Jacobin Magazine and was the 2019-2020 investigative fellow at In These Times. He's the author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Thanks for joining us, Branko. Thank you for having me. So when you wrote this, uh, when it was published, the primaries were still on. Joe Biden was not yet the nominee. Uh, so while he is yesterday's man, I guess he's also, <laughs> whether we like it or not, today's man. Um, in, in going through the book, uh, it, it, Biden seems to be a man whose maybe instinct is to kind of go a little bit more liberal, a little bit more understanding things. But when political expediency says go to the right – He'll certainly go to the right, whether it's on crime, on the Iraq war. Um, so, so just you know, w w just overall, do you, did I come away with a correct impression? That and, and, and what do you make of that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he's definitely on the more conservative end of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, he's not he's not an ultra conservative, but he definitely leans that way. I mean, if you look at even uh, his his uh, AFL CIO rating. Um, he was for a long time in the eighties. Uh, he basically was around the same level as uh, Gary Hart, who was hated by organized labor. Um, if you look at, for example, his lifelong uh, environmental rating, he, he started out as a really committed environmentalist, but by the end, his ratings were pretty middling, uh, and in fact, actually pretty low if you compare them to to most other Democrats. Um, so, yeah, Biden has these conserv conservative instincts. Uh, part of it is, of course, the state that uh, that you know he he had to to run in and, and win. Um, part of it is the time that he came up in. I mean, uh, I try and explain that in the book that uh, he he ran as kind of a 
slightly socially conservative New Deal liberal initially. Um, and then when uh, American politics really kind of shifted to the right um, by the end of the 1970s, and he saw that he had an impending re-election, uh, he kind of shifted uh, to the right to follow that. And that's what kind of where he stayed for a long time. I mean, even as late as the, the early 2000s, and uh, I think it was 2003, he said, you know, left-wing populism is not the way that you win elections. The country was exactly where it should have been with Clinton's third way. Um, this is This is what has to happen not just to win but also just to govern um i think that really is kind of his his fundamental philosophy is that the the country is uh you know more conservative um on the whole uh you know not just on social issues but but even economics um so the big question going forward is uh it does biden now at you know what he's 77 78 years old um you know i i I think it's safe to say he's past his prime. Uh, this is probably the last thing he's ever going to do in his life. He might only one, run for, for one term, so he has no re-election. Uh, is he going to be able to cast aside decades of uh, internalized political wisdom that he's taken away from his career and everything that's happened in his life um, and and really lead this, uh, uh, this FDR-style presidency that he keeps talking about? Or is this just another case of Joe Biden telling voters exactly what he thinks they want to hear and something that he has no intention of doing, which, you know, we have to be honest and clear eyed. Uh, That is what he has done throughout his entire career, very uh, shamelessly. Um, And the tough thing is right now, uh, it's not it's not super clear. We, We don't know. I mean, it potentially could go either way. Um I, it, it's, uh, I don't think we're going to know until maybe around December, late November, when we start seeing who he's going to uh, you know, actually appoint to his administration. I give him one or two pluses. Uh, apparently, uh, when Obama was uh, haggling with the Republicans and, and the Republicans wanted a, a trillion-dollar investment in nuclear weapon technology, uh, uh, Biden apparently was against it. And Obama thought it was necessary to go along with it to make a deal with Republicans on some other issues to do with the military budget and and such. But Obama was quite happy or ready to do the deal with the big investment in nuclear weapons, which is a big investment in a very dangerous, even making accidental nuclear war even more dangerous. And Biden apparently opposed it. This is in a book written about it. Um, the the other thing I give him some credit for is that he fought for the Iran uh, nuclear deal and fought against Chuck Schumer and that wing of the party that was that, that's very hawkish and very pro Netanyahu Israel and uh, Larry Wilkerson was on the hill fighting for the Iran nuclear deal and, and he was saying that Biden fought quite hard for that. On the other hand, he's got a pretty lousy history on a lot of foreign policy issues. So why don't you talk about Biden historically on foreign policy? And and then we can talk again about what to expect. Uh, as I said in the introduction, his rhetoric on China has been pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, Biden, similar to on the domestic front, he started out as kind of a, a, a liberal on foreign policy. Uh, he was very critical of U.S. Po- uh, policy in countries like Angola. And, um, you know, he was critical of Henry Kissinger. Uh, again, by the time that he had to run for re-election uh, in the late 70s, 
he he kind of flipped that because he realized, hey, wait a minute, I got to try and appeal to, um, I guess, a more conservative voting base, even though that's not how he had won originally, but nonetheless. Um, and by the 80s, when Reagan wins, he completely makes a shift to to kind of being more of a of a democratic hawk because he looks at Reagan's victories. And, and he does this whole tour uh, through the United States, kind of castigating Democrats and, and telling them, "Hey, we we can't be the the party of not going to war anymore. Uh, we have to we have to support military intervention. Um, at least be more willing to do it than we have been in the past. Otherwise, we're going to keep getting uh, rolled by these guys." Uh, and uh, by the nineties, um, here he's he's very much a full-fledged hawk. Uh, you know, he's calling for intervention in, in the, the wars in Yugoslavia. He's uh, calling for uh, harsher measures against Iraq. Uh, all of that obviously um, leads up to uh, the moment in, in 2002 where, where Biden uh, not just votes for the Iraq war, which is the thing that um, – uh, you know, people have always kind of slammed him for, but but slightly inaccurately because he didn't just vote for it. He was a full-on cheerleader for it. I mean, he was vital to the Bush administration's messaging to sell Democrats and liberal voters uh, onto the Iraq War, um, and and actually even toured after the after his vote, toured uh, the Middle East, kind of trying to to. to smooth things and make sure that that when the U.S. invaded, there would be no uh, problem. Um, to his credit, uh, by the uh, by, the time he was in the Obama administration, uh, he definitely took some good uh, positions. You mentioned the the Iran deal. There's also the fact that um, uh, he uh, opposed the war in Libya, reportedly. Um, he opposed the surge in Afghanistan. Uh, on the other hand, uh, at the same time, Biden was responsible for devising what basically became Obama's foreign policy, which is the, the, the uh, it's called the counterterrorism plus policy. So basically drones and special forces. That was Obama's approach. Instead of sending uh, troops for these costly wars, um, you know, invasions, instead what we'll do is we'll kind of just do these, these small little quote unquote surgical uh, deployments, um, which, you know, uh, of course, as much, cheaper in terms of, of lives and money for the United States in terms of uh, whether it's actually strategically better um, that that uh, I would say has been proven completely the opposite because people in these countries still resent the US intervening whether they're invading or whether they're just sort of, you know blowing up their neighbors with drones um, or, or you know uh, raiding their houses at night and, and killing family members um, I think also the other thing about Biden is that he he, he really has not the best judgment on foreign policy. Um, he was one of the people that pushed for NATO expansion in the 90s. Uh, he was he was a you know, big leader in that. And, and that is part of the reason why there's this um, really uh, strong anti-American resentment um, uh, and, and the rise in Russian nationalism that kind of helped Putin uh, come to power. Um, you know, Biden... When he was Obama's point man in Iraq, he uh, uh, pushed for um, uh, al-Maliki, the, the Iraqi strongman, to, to stay in power. Um, and he kind of overruled people who, who were kind of 
um, looking for a less sectarian solution to Iraq's problems. Biden's belief is that that uh, you know people are kind of uh, racial and, and ethnic and religious lines uh, irreparably divide people and that can't be bridged. And uh, therefore, war and conflict is inevitable between people of different um, you know different backgrounds. And so the only way to to deal with it is is to separate them. Um, that was where he pushed in Iraq, and that you know it was a, it was. Uh, a disastrous idea that was criticized by pretty much everyone. Um, you know, so uh, I could go on and on, but um, uh, yeah, it doesn't always have the best foreign policy judgment. Even now, uh, we can go into this a little more, but but even now, he's not really proposing to roll back some of the stuff that Trump has done. He's going to leave in place uh, a lot of the things that, that uh, Trump is doing that's disastrous. Um, so, you know, a mixed bag. Uh, for example... Yeah, uh, he uh, was asked whether he would take sanctions off Iran. I mean, the, the, these sanctions right now in the middle of coronavirus, uh, they, they were always uh, arguably genocidal. Um, uh, maybe people would want to quibble with, with whether that word is appropriate um, in that context. I think now it can't really be be uh, disputed um, in the middle of this pandemic. And tr- Biden said that, you know, we'll have to see. He's, he's not going to commit to it. Um, he's also going to... Is he committed? Is he committed to going back to the uh, Iran nuclear agreement? Uh, yep, yep, he is. Um, so we'll see what. I mean, I'm not sure how he's going to reconcile those two things. Um, I mean, also, uh, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, because if you go back to the agreement, you got to drop the sanctions. Yeah, right. Yeah, but you know, then there's a question of is Iran even going to want to? Um, you know, I mean, uh, they may have no choice ultimately. But uh, as it is, I mean, I. I, if I was an Iranian leader, would would really uh, uh, not be sure what the benefit is of uh, of entering a deal that that you know is going to be reneged on as soon as a Republican comes in. Um, so I think there's going to be difficulties there. But yeah, I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, Biden at least does the right thing, and, and maybe when he's not campaigning, eventually he, you know, um, will lift sanctions as a kind of show of, of good faith. I guess I don't know. Um, uh, he's also not going to move the uh, U.S. embassy that's been moved to Jerusalem, um, which was obviously a very inflammatory move by by Biden uh, by Trump. I'm sorry, actually one that Biden himself voted for uh, back in 1995, I believe 95 and 96. Um, he voted to allow it, uh, so he's going to keep that there. Um, I, I believe he's also not going to. Uh, he he refuses to uh, condition Israeli aid. Um, which at a time when Israel is, is going to uh, annex a, a, a large swath of, of Palestinian land. I'm not really sure what the end goal there is. Um, you know, I, mean, I think a lot of people will say, well, you know, this is just Biden saying stuff during the campaign. He doesn't want to move too far left to give Trump too much ammunition um, or, or give Republicans too much ammunition. The question is, though, I mean, if you're not going to move left or, or even move on these things, which are bipartisan, policy until recently uh, during an election where, you know, the other guy is really just drowning um, because he's completely uh, making a mess out of this uh, this pandemic response. When will you? Because, of course, after the election, it's only two more years before midterms. Um, and, you know, the the argument then becomes, well, hold on, we can't move too far left because we've got, we've got to keep the House and the Senate. Uh, or, well, at the very least, we can't, you know, lose, lose more in the Senate. So um, I think, uh, yeah, again, a mixed bag. Uh, there's a reason why the Bernie Sanders Unity Task Force has completely left out foreign policy. Uh, they, I think... Yeah, there was no joint task force on foreign policy. That's right, yeah. 
I, I think they they figured, you know, this is just something that's not worth. And, what they, and you say the reason is that they would have had such disagreements that there wasn't a point of trying to have a joint plan or? I, I suspect that that's it. I think they thought, you know, what are the places that we can push him on? Um, and domestic policy might be those things. And they just figured it's no point doing having a fight of a foreign policy because it's, uh, I mean, you know, you are fighting a lot of in, in, entrenched interests with foreign policy, I guess. Uh, not just Biden's uh, caution, but also, uh, you know, the, the entire kind of national security bureaucracy and the kind of the, the, the DC national security uh, uh, wider establishment there that, that, you know, has such sway. So, yeah. Before we get into the substance of the Biden climate plan, um, there's a foreign policy piece to this, and I, I said this in the introduction. Um, as 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 good or not good as the Biden clam, climate plan is, and I, I think one would conclude it's nowhere near enough to stop a catastrophe, but it's a lot more than we've seen from Biden up until now. But if it isn't if it isn't done in collaboration with China, it's almost meaningless. If if China and the United States don't together forge a climate plan, and then they keep using each other as an excuse not to do it, oh, we're not going to do it because China's not, and vice versa. Um, then then the plan kind of doesn't mean anything. You can say, you know, in Biden's plan, it talks about uh, all, all electricity will be uh, created by sustainable energy. Uh, by 2035. But even if they hit that target, if the rest of the world doesn't hit some kind of target, then it, again, it's meaningless. Uh, so this issue of him trying to almost outflank Trump from the right, from from a more aggressive tone on China, is this a tactic? Uh, so to take China away as a, card, a Trump card in the election? Uh, or is he, is he committed to this, you know, Obama pivot? But, you know, his, his rhetoric about China is a lot more aggressive than anything Obama used. Yeah, I would say that it's, it's probably a, a campaign tactic, which is pretty typical for Biden. Uh, Biden's response to any anyone you know to the right of him who is attacking him from the right has always been to move right um which is actually one of the you know in the in the book i argued one of the dangers of nominating someone like that uh someone who's whose only response to right-wing attacks is to to pivot right um again perhaps uh he will turn over turn over a new leaf uh, uh if and when he wins the presidency but uh, we'll have to see that um uh, yeah, uh, the other uh, the, the other point about this is that that uh, this idea of of competing with China, you know, going green, but also making the the, the center point of this kind of competitive economic strategy, um, that's that's a pretty typical standard um, Washington kind of kind of view. Uh, honestly, uh, during the primary campaign, I didn't really see anyone articulate any sort of um, realistic vision for for what actual uh, climate policy will look like other than Bernie Sanders. Um, even Elizabeth Warren kind of couched her plan in terms of competing uh, with the rest of the world in terms of kind of making making the the, the United States this this big exporter. Um, and so yeah, you're right. Unless there's cooperation, um, not just with China, but even with countries like like Russia um, and a host of others, 
Um, obviously, they're, they're big polluters. Unless that happens, uh, yes, all these plans are very nice. And even if they get achieved, um, it will uh, ultimately not mean anything. Uh, you know, again, uh, I think we, we talked about this before, but I think a lot of this is going to depend on who does Biden pick to actually run his administration. Um, you know, uh, I think that's going to tell you a lot about what kind of foreign policy ultimately he's going to pick. Whether under Biden, a kind of cooperative foreign policy to to take a global approach to solving the climate crisis is actually going to happen, or whether it's just going to be more of the um, Obama administration. What do you make of a Susan Rice as a, either VP or Secretary of State? Uh, well, yes, Susan Rice uh, on the on the hawkish end of the uh, Democratic foreign policy debate. Um, you know, so uh, I think we can we can expect probably a lot of. Uh, Tough stuff against Russia. I think I think Biden has said as much as well. Uh, you know, again, trying to uh, create a contrast with Trump, saying, "Well, you know, Trump doesn't go hard with Russia. I will." Um, it sounds very good. Unfortunately, you know, the, the reality is that uh, the U.S.-Russia relationship was uh, it's been terrible for a long time, even before the the hacking, um, which which itself was a response to to provocations uh, by the United States. Um, and, uh, it's, it's all well and good to kind of come in and say, I'm going to be tough on, on Russia. But the problem is that, you know, these are two, uh, heavily nuclear armed countries, um, that have, you know, obviously a history of nearly coming to, uh, to blows that, you know, to say the least. Um, and, uh, right now the political climate, is such, and it's been this way for four years, that that even floating the idea of having a cooperative uh, relationship, or at least uh, tamping down tensions with Russia, uh, is a, is a is a good thing. It's something that the world uh, should aim for. It's kind of uh, has been delegitimized. Uh, so I think that's what we can we can look forward to with with uh, that. I mean, uh, another person to watch for is Michelle Flournoy. Uh, she was in 2016 um, floated to be Hillary Clinton's uh, Secretary of State. Uh, she is. Um, now uh, at a think tank, obviously that didn't that didn't work out. Um, but I've I've heard some things that maybe she could be in the running for for a similar position again. Um, and if so, I mean, Flournoy has uh, has written in the past about uh, the, you know the idea of, of centering U.S. security in economic security and basing it on um, uh, becoming an even more, even bigger exporter of fossil fuels. Uh, so if Michelle Forno gets in there, uh, will not be uh, will not be a great sign for you know preventing the climate crisis. Um, but I think you know all this points to the, points to why people when, when Biden, uh, if and when Biden wins and Trump is out, people cannot just simply sort of. Uh, you know, go back to brunch, uh, as, as people uh, have been saying over the last few years. It, it, people have are going to have to resist and have to pressure Biden as much as they have Trump. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be very easy for him to do a lot of terrible, terrible things. I think they're going to have to pressure Biden more than Trump because with Trump, there was very little chance of actually influencing any policy. But Biden needs to hear the 
the the footsteps in the streets or he's his natural inclination will be to succumb to the pressures of both finance and the military industrial complex uh, and so on he's got to feel uh, practically I, I mean terrorized is too strong a word but he's got to really feel that the the people are ready for massive change and 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 and, and this accommodation he did with the left wing of the party putting AOC on the climate task force and you know making these deals with Bernie to make it sort of appease the left of the party um, if he forgets all that once he's elected and he's very likely to uh, certainly Obama you know promised all kinds of stuff to the unions the employee free choice act and then that just completely disappeared once he was elected uh, his natural inclination will be, uh, as you say in the book and, and, and in the interview, just to get along and to get along with the more, you know, quote unquote, centrist Republicans. But if there's a real massive organizing uh, in the streets and, and, and online and wherever, but the, I don't but I don't kind of see it as the problem. Uh, the consciousness of the movement, the protests in Portland, well, maybe we, go, we did this other conversation on Portland, are, are people raising more than police reform demands is there is is there a consciousness growing in the movement that this movement needs to take on the big issues of of both in terms of who owns stuff who has power especially on the question of climate foreign policy do, do you see that kind of consciousness developing in a way that this movement can have that kind of force i think uh we saw some of that forming with the uh the teacher strikes over the last few years um which which you know were uh influenced uh by the bernie sanders campaign um you know i think even as a as a awareness or consciousness raising event that was a really important thing um but i think it's also important in the fact in the fact that those teachers uh really won tangible victories they um they, you know, by taking action, they, they won. Um, and that's a really important thing. And it's really important for a whole variety of reasons, not just for kind of building the momentum that you need to, to, to keep pushing further and further, but also for engendering the kind of solidarity that, that you need for a, um, you know, to, to make a mass movement. Um, you know, I, I think, in the in the Portland example, uh, one of the things that I have seen uh, down there, you know, people I've seen a few articles here and there, kind of saying that the try, or trying to, excuse me, <clears throat> trying to make the point that uh, because most of the protesters are, are white, um, that it's in some way sort of taken oxygen away from from the Black Lives Matter movement or, or the the cause that Black Lives Matter is fighting for, you know, racial justice and an end to police brutality. And honestly, I, I think that couldn't be further from the truth. I, I think actually one of the amazing things about the last uh, last couple months um, is the fact that that uh, people from a wide variety of different backgrounds um, do feel a sense of solidarity, even across uh, racial lines. Um, you know, that, that it shows that there's that. That is not such a big division that people cannot um, have solidarity with a fellow man and, and, and fight for, um, uh, you know, for, for justice for someone who's not them. Um, and that's what we're seeing in Poland. You know, uh, I talked to actually one of, the, one of the protest leaders and he said, you know, the 
there, there have been many police killings in Portland and elsewhere uh, over the years. There's been many protests. The police response has always been just as violent as it has been um, this particular time. What's new this time is is that uh, there's all these other people. You know, elderly people are coming out. People who who you know may not have been protesting at all um, the last few years uh, or, or ever, um, and but but were so affected by what they saw that they uh, understood the need to get out on the streets. And, and he said, you know, their, their eyes have been opened. Um, and I think we're seeing that across the U.S. in general with with police brutality. I mean, these protests now uh, are much more popular than the BLM protests were back in 2015. Um, I, I think they were viewed majority uh, majority negatively at the time. Um, that's been a huge shift. You know, hopefully. Uh, these that that that's not just going to dissipate, but it's actually going to be something that people can build off of uh, going forward. I mean, there's definitely been victories that have been won in, in some cities to, to achieve police reforms. Um, you know, uh, I, it remains to be seen. Uh, I I you know have my fingers crossed. I, I hope that that it does lead to something bigger. In the book, you have a paragraph where you say that it's not. I don't have the in front of me, but you, it's not out of the question. Biden could actually move even more to the right in in a sense could accomplish more moving to the right than even Trump. Um, and there's some people arguing that the, there's not enough difference between a Biden and a Trump for people to get involved in worrying about whether Biden wins or not. Uh, you've spent the last bit of your life with Biden. Uh, what do you make of that debate? I mean, I, I think that is a real concern. I mean, I uh, when the, the protests had just started, when we were seeing this um, uh, really crazy wave of, of state violence being visited upon protesters and, and journalists and everything, um, and people kind of pining for the end of Trump, and I tried to point out, well, hold on, this isn't, you know, Trump's done some terrible things, but for a long time, this was actually violence at the hands of of, of Democrats, uh, you know, liberal mayors, uh, Democrat governors. Um, they were overseeing this stuff, and they were the ones who were blaming outside agitators and, and you know, bringing in um, uh, federal surveillance and everything. And and it was around this time that, you know, Biden uh, put out this, this bit of his platform uh, to do with uh, with policing, I believe, or or, uh, or no, it was a, it was outreach to the Jewish community, and one of the things that he wanted to pass uh, was a domestic terrorism bill. Um, you know, which if we remember when when Trump was talking about declaring Antifa a terrorist organization, uh, which which people were very rightly um, alarmed about, one of the reasons that he couldn't do this was because there isn't domestic terrorism legislation. Um, not yet, anyway. Uh, you know, so one of the worries that I have is that Trump will lose, Biden comes in, um, and because everyone just assumes, okay, everything's back to normal now, we're all fine, this guy's here, uh, people sort of just tune out and, and you know, go back to living their lives and stop caring, and Biden gets away with a whole host of things that, that a Republican could never get, get away with because, um, because, you know, Republicans – trying to, whether it's cut Social Security and Medicare or, you know, pass some sort of extreme uh, national security legislation that always engenders this, um, this, this, this anger from, from liberal voters that isn't always there when it's a Democrat. Obama famously tried to cut those programs. Um, he, Obama, you know, very much escalated the, the war on terror that, that Bush had started, did things that Bush 
uh, in a, you know, would have been uh, tarred as, as kind of the, the next Hitler if he had tried to do. Um, and uh, so I, I truly worry that does not that that does not happen. One of the things that makes me think that maybe it won't is because unlike Obama, Biden is not a particularly um, popular politician uh if you look at polling overwhelmingly the only reason people are voting for him is because they just they want trump out um he's not someone who people necessarily agree with on a policy basis he's he's you know i think well past uh his peak in terms of being able to be a charismatic and persuasive and 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 sort of magnetic politician you know we've all seen his uh, debate performances and that kind of thing so i think it's going to be harder for him to get away with some of this more reactionary stuff that say someone like obama might have gone away with um uh, you know again this is all speculation but i think the key takeaway is that that yes uh if if the only pressure that biden gets is from finance and, and big business and uh, the right, the far right, uh, then he is going to move in that direction because why he has no reason not to. It's the easiest thing to do. So the pressure from the left has to be equal, if not greater, uh, than than the pressure he's getting from the right and from big business. Um, and and that hopefully means people will be out in the streets even under a Biden administration. And something you said in the beginning, which I think I agree with, uh, you know, his age is, is actually a plus in a way. He doesn't really need to worry about a political career after he's been president. There's not going to be in either even unlikely a second term, but he's certainly not going to run for anything other than that and, not, and likely not even a second term. Uh, he's not looking to feather his nest the way Obama was. I mean, Obama wanted to live with the billionaire class once he left the presidency, and he more or less is. His his buddies and friends. He goes vacationing with 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 the super rich. Uh, so maybe there is a kind of weird historic moment here where Obama, I'm sorry, where Biden uh, actually might want to go down as a president. He says he wants to have the most progressive administration uh, since Roosevelt. Uh, there's nothing in his history to tell us that he would do that. On the other hand, maybe we're in just such weird times right now, including that so much of the, even the financial elites are all for spending tons of money right now. They don't mind. They're, they've all become super Keynesian. And if he wants to have a two, three million dollar uh, green infrastructure plan and pour money into the economy, uh, the, the Wall Street, the financial elites, they, they'll probably be quite supportive of it, especially given that his climate plan doesn't really take on the fossil fuel companies. So I, I don't know how effective it's going to be actually in terms of climate, but in terms of a kind of liberalish Keynesian domestic policy, uh, the conditions are, are quite good for it. Yeah, I think it's, uh, as you say, important to remind ourselves that, that, that in this particular historical moment, anything can happen. Um, some, you know, really crazy things can happen that, that I would not have envisioned when I was writing this. I definitely did not envision a global pandemic and accompanying depression. Um, and so I think that's that's key to know. I think the other thing is, you know, there's a, a bit of a, a bigger left block forming in, in Congress, at least in the House. Um, you know, I think those lawmakers have to start acting more like the uh, Tea Party um, did, um, you know, for the Republicans, really throwing their weight around, even if they're a very small amount of people. They, they you know, otherwise... It's 
it's going to be very hard to – they don't have any other leverage. You know, they're not going to be given, given a seat at the table. Uh, the Democrats don't want them uh, to have any influence on the policy. Uh, and again, you know, to, to reiterate um, – uh, people, you know, they they got to get out there. They, the worst thing that, that that can happen is that people make excuses for Biden in the same way that they did for Obama. You know, oh well, you know, I'm sure he wants to do the right thing. He just can't. Oh well, you know, he has to do this because you know the, he has to win the midterms. Blah 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 blah. That's the absolute worst thing you could do with a politician is to coddle them. You have to light a fire under them. You have to make them create the pressure, make them. Uh, do what you want them to do. Uh, you know, to, to use that uh, apocryphal uh, FDR story. You know, when when a bunch of um, uh, labor activists and others went to his office and, and he, you know, said, you know, I, I agree with everything you want me to do. Now make me do it. Um, so even if we assume the the very best motives from Joe Biden, um, that he really does want to do this, he really does want to be the next FDR. Make him do it. Listen to uh, the original FDR. Make him do it. All right. Thanks for joining us, Branko. Pleasure. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.